Hey, I'm your co-host, Ryan C. Bradley. I'm popping on a little before the episode to let you know that we recorded this a very long time ago. And so some of our discussion, especially about the Let the Right One In show on Showtime, is is not up to date, um, as you'll see as you listen. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back, gals, ghouls, and badass days of the world. I'm your host, Cass Clark, and joined, as always, by my lovely co-host, Ryan C. Bradley. Hello. And this month, we have a returning guest star, Yutaka. Hello. (laughs) So excited to be here. Thank you for coming back. We're so excited to dive into Brutal Vampires. Ryan, would you like to dive into the history of Brutal Vampires? Yes. All of it, um, the entire history. <laughs> so obviously, yeah, there'll be a couple holes. Uh, yeah, so before vampires and literature film, they were a particularly brutal bit of folklore. Because what a vampire would do is someone in your family would die and the vampire would come back and then suck the life out of all of your loved ones, one at a time. And the cure, which is metal as fuck, a stake to the heart, yes, but also cut off the heads and hands of the deceased and burn them along with the heart. Whoa. Um, and what? then rebury everything. So it's, yeah, the movies don't have that because I think that would be like way too much. Even like today, like I don't think I've seen a movie that does something as brutal as decapitate. And then uh, is there a word for cutting off hands? You just say cutting off hands. Now that I know of, maybe yeah, there should same. be. <laughs> maybe, honestly, uh, I think it was a, if, if that was the movie trip instead of a stake through the heart, I feel like we would have a word for it. But I mean, cool. so those are the ways to, to kill a vampire in the old folklore. And I did a couple papers on this in college. And so scholars really theorized this had a lot to do with diseases like tuberculosis, which someone from your household would get first. They'd come home, um, they would die. And then everyone else would start to die. And then these grieving people would dig up their loved one, decapitate them, cut off their hands, rip out their heart and burn it all. Which I can't imagine was like not emotionally harrowing. Yeah. That person was your daughter a week ago and now you're doing all this stuff. I mean, it's still your daughter. It's now your dead daughter. Yeah, I'm sure uh, they weren't looking forward to it, Ryan. They weren't like, oh, well, we just got to cut no. off your head. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think the, the kicker is that doesn't actually stop tuberculosis. No, it doesn't. Mm-mm. Or any such disease. So it's very sad, very brutal. So Dracula took this folklore and Dracula and the other, the vampires, Carmilla, um, a lot of vampire poems. They took this and they made it a lot less brutal. I mean, there are some movements in Dracula. I think the, the Bluefer Lady plotline in Dracula, if you've read the book, is very upsetting. But then we get to Nosferatu in 1922, and that's our first breakout film. Cast has a ton of history for, but it was an adaptation of Dracula, is my understanding. Yeah, we'll um, definitely dig into it later because there's a lot of drama around it. Uh, but it is worth noting that it is technically the second ever uh, adaptation of Dracula. So from my reading, I saw it was the third. The third? Ooh. Oh, what was yeah, the saw, original one? I, I didn't write down the names, but I saw there are two lost films that are ad- adapting mm-hmm. Dracula, one from Russia, one from Hungary. Oh, okay. So I have no one I'm from Hungary. I know nothing about the Russian one, though. I think it was like early 1900s and it was lost. They're both lost films. Mm-hmm. So Nosferatu is our first one that we can actually watch. Okay, sweet. 
So following from there, 1932 is The Vampire, a silent German film. It's a classic. If you haven't seen it, definitely highly recommend it. It's an adaptation of Cam- Carmilla. And there's a ton of vampire movies between 1932 and 1960. I haven't seen a ton of them. The ones I have seen are much more on the goofy end than the brutal end. Have you mm-hmm. guys seen the brutal stuff from around then? I think even like the hammer stuff is kind of, the Christopher Lee stuff is fun, but I would say more goofy than brutal. Yeah. Can't say I have. 1954, a very significant moment in the history of vampires. The comic book codes comes into effect after a series of congressional hearings. And one of the aspects of that code is banning vampires from comic books, which are very popular in horror comic books before that. I mean, you wouldn't really get more vampires until Stan Lee started like, Basically, like, fuck the code and did the Spider-Man story with Harry Osborn getting hooked on pills. But Marvel did skirt it with horror magazines. So they're comic books, but actually they were magazines. Exactly ah. the same as a comic book, but they called them magazines to get around the comic code. 1960, ah. Black Sunday by Mario Bava. 1963, one of my favorite movies of all time, Black Sabbath. The anthology film has a very brutal segment where Boris... Boris Karloff plays a vampire. His conflict is whether or not to eat his favorite grandson after he turns. God. Um, and Boris Karloff really plays the hell out of that character. He acts the hell out of that movie. He also comes back at the end in a, a really great way. A fun fact about Black Sabbath, Ozzy and co. copped the name for their metal band because they mm. were playing across the street from a movie theater and there's a long line to see Black Sabbath by Mario Bava and no one wanted to see Ozzy Osbourne. So they took the name. They became Black Sabbath. Oh, sweet. Goki, Body Snatcher from Hell in 1968. It's a Japanese vampire flick where a blob turns people into vampires. Am I missing anything in the 60s? Not that I know of. Very cool. 1970s, you had, uh, starting in 1970, Valerie and Her Week of Wonders. which is a super trippy Czechoslovakian movie with a vampire in it. There's the Bloodthirsty Trilogy, three Japanese vampires, movies between 1970 and 1974. 1973, you had Ganja and Hess, the only other lead role for Joanne Jones from Night of the Living Dead. It was on Shudder for a while. It's definitely worth watching. 1977, Rabid is early Cronenberg, very nasty. 1978, Martin, early Romero, has a devastating ending, one of my favorites. 1979, Toby Hooper gets in on everything with Salem's Lot, adapting Stephen King. 1979, Warner Hezrog remakes Nosferatu. Um, if you've never read an interview with Warner Hezrog, you absolutely should, because he just says the most wild shit. <laughs> so anything I missed in the 70s? All right, moving to the, the 80s. Um, 1982, Larry Fessenden directed Habit, which is the first of many films where vampire uh, is an addiction, um, with that metaphor in it. We could do an episode on that, honestly, um, and they're all pretty good. On 1985, Toby Hooper's back with Vampires in Space and Life Force. 1985, Mr. Vampire series starts in Japan. That's five movies. 1989, there's Vampire's Kiss. Not sure if this one fits here or better than in comedy, but I love Nicolas Cage's performance in it. Um, that brings us to the 90s. We have Death by Temptation in 1990, which has a succubus versus a preacher. It in 1990, it might be a stretch to call it a vampire movie, but... Pennywise is a psychic vampire at one point, or he says he's a psychic vampire at one point, so I'm, I'm not sure about that one. 1991, My Soul is Slashed in Japan. 1993, uh, a big one, uh, Guillermo del Toro's first movie, Kronos. Uh, first movie as a director. He was doing special effects long before that. Uh, the Addiction from 1985. 
by Abel Ferrara, directed by Abel Ferrara. If you're a Sopranos fan, Carmela and Christopher <laughs> are both in it. I'm saying that specifically for Casks, I know we're both Sopranos yeah. fans. From Dust Till Dawn in 1996, where Quentin Tarantino writes for Robert Rodriguez. He's got two sequels. 80, uh, not 88, 1998, Blade comes out the first Blade. A lot of awesome fight scenes. Two sequels, one directed by Guillermo del Toro. Mm-hmm. Underworld 2003 which feels a lot like a retread of Blade without the superhero element also has a lot of cool fights for sequels The Thirst in 2006 another vampire addiction movie 2007 30 Days of Night this was almost a breakout film we both really like it so um, underrated it's so good know, that also had a sequel and it was based on a graphic novel Let the Right One In came out in 2008 based on the novel it's our second breakout film 2009, Park Chan-wook had Thirst, uh, directed Thirst. 2009 also had Daybreakers. 2010 had the American remake of Let's Write One and Let Me In. 2014, Spike Lee directed a vampire joint, The Sweet Blood of Jesus. I have not seen it, but very much want to. 2014 had one of my other favorite vampire films, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which is phenomenal. I always put Get Out as a vampire film. It always struck me that way because of the way they're turning people into to them. Hmm. I could see that. That's a yeah. I also yeah. always want to plug Get Out. <laughs> 2019, Joe Bagos directed Bliss. I really like it. I really like Joe Bagos' last two movies, Bliss and VFW. 2017, 2019, respectively. It's part one and two came out. And again, Psychic Vampire. Doctor Sleep, 2019. We love Mike Flanagan, and that's another Psychic Vampire. And 2021, this year, had another Mike Flanagan vampire project with Midnight Mass. Oh, that was so good and so brutal. Oh, yeah. Heartbreak. Beautiful is a really great word for that series. Am I, what am I missing? Boys of County Hell. The Irish. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I forgot. Yes. Yeah, that one's so good. Came out like a year ago-ish now. I think came out in 2021. Yeah. Fantastic. It's more of a comedy but when we do see the vampire the vampire is very fucking brutal so yeah yeah and i'm sure there's plenty more we're missing (laughs) because there's a lot in this genre i think vampires like we're talking about before the we started recording how long the history for animal attacks was i think like if you wanted to do like you could probably find like five hours of vampire movies just to say just the way i did oh Um, my god one at a time we broke into three things but we could have probably broke it into ten Well, that brings us to our first breakout film, 1922's Nosferatu. So before I go into the synopsis, a little bit of background history, because it really shapes everything we know about this film, and it'd be impossible to talk about it without talking about this part. It is an adaptation of Dracula at the time uh, that it was being adapted. Uh, Bram Stoker was already deceased. He died in 1912. So his estate was under the control of Florence Stoker. Uh, It's very important to note because she sued the entire filmmaker team for trying to adapt Dracula without at all talking to her, which is totally fair. And an interesting tidbit about the Stoker legacy and family at this time, like in 1912 and up until when this film was being made, Dracula was not a bestseller. It was not like a book that was flying off the shelves. It was still in print, but it certainly wasn't making Florence a ton of money. So she was well within her rights to sue uh, the the filmmaking team for trying to adapt her husband's work uh, because she was likely very financially strapped, especially given the constraints of the time for a woman to find work. So Mm. that affected a lot. 
the lawsuit ended up uh, reaching a settlement, which required them to ban and destroy any negatives of Nosferatu. However, Nosferatu did survive because people often made copies of the print, all from different places, because someone would get their hands on it, similar to back when, I don't know if either of you remember, but you ever record something on a VHS and then you could like record that recording mm-hmm. with like two VCRs and you that could just keep going like the ring style forever. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, that's what happened way back when in the 20s and, and beyond with this film. So that's why when you are watching Nosferatu, a lot of the times you're not watching the same film as someone else because you're watching some other countries like cut and version of it. But sometimes <laughs> it looks super green. Sometimes it looks super blue because they tried to color correct it to distinguish between when it's day and night in the film because the original film was shot in black and white. So that's important to say off, off the bat. From what I could find the best cut together version of this film is actually from the FW Murnau Foundation. And Murnau is the director of Nosferatu from 1922. In 2007, they basically went through every cut that they could find that is still out there and remastered it into an edition that the foundation believes is closest to what the original film actually looked like. They redid the score. They brought back from what they could find the original inserts and like little interstitial cards between the acts and made sure that the names were reflective of how the film wanted them to be. You'll notice in some, some versions of this film, they changed the names a bit. So originally the woman who's the wife's name is Ellen, but in some cuts of this, you'll notice that her name goes back to Nina which is obviously from Bram Stoker's Dracula. And then Orlok in some versions, Count Orlok is changed back to Dracula. But when it was originally adapted, there wasn't a Dracula, quote unquote, in the film. It's Orlok. There wasn't a Nina. It's Ellen. There wasn't a Renfield. <laughs> All that gets spliced in when people try to re-edit it around the movie. Important to say, because a lot of times the summary of this gets confusing because people use different names. Which versions is y'all watch? So I, for this time, I watched... Uh, regrettably on Amazon prime, a version that you, that was not great. It was, I don't, I don't recommend it because the title cards bring back the Dracula names, which makes it even more confusing. Oh. Yeah. And it, it just didn't, didn't work for me. What about you two? I actually found mine on YouTube at Turner classic movies. Nice. nice. <laughs> I didn't know the history in terms of this. And I will say all the names were Ellen, Hutter, and Count Orlock. So I it didn't change, but that's fascinating because that would have caught me off guard. Yeah. I would be like, what the? Yeah. I watched the, the version on Shudder and it had the names just like Yutaka said, not the Dracula names. Yeah, should I went to Shudder and I, I would have to double check, but I'm willing to bet it probably was the two, 2007 cut that they probably have because they're pretty good about that kind of stuff. So the summary, Count Orlock basically wants to get another house. So he summons real estate agent Hutter to his castle in Transylvania and surprise, he wants to buy a home really close to Hutter and his wife, Ellen. Count Orlock is also a vampire who has a thirst for blood and for Ellen. Uh, Hutter is a damn mess trying to figure out how to escape the Count. And meanwhile, Orlock's already packing his bag and ready to move in basically with Ellen and hijinks ensues. So that is my quick summary. <laughs> the film is directed by F.W. Murnau with a screenplay written by Henrik Galin. A lot of time when people are talking about this film, they'll say it's like one of the first German expressionist films. Other people will say it's more about like German romanticism of the time. 
I just think it's very German. There's a really great YouTube video from this channel called Vintage Soup that I'll link to in our show notes that does a fantastic breakdown of all the reasons why it is or isn't German expressionism and also really digs into the history of the time period, which I highly recommend. So I'll touch on it a little, but definitely check that out. From what I could find in my research, this was the second film to ever be adapted slash based on Dracula. The first one that I could find was a 1921 film called Dracula's Death, which is a Hungarian-Austrian film. Uh, Some people also call it a Russian film. I don't know if we actually know. The closest that we know about this film's existence is photos that just popped up in Hungary that archivists had found. From there, they were like, okay, I guess this film existed. And what we know of the film, it was not at all like Dracula in the sense of how Dracula was in the Bram Stoker's book. In this version, the vampire was an insane musician who just had a thirst for blood. So I'm really sad that I can't watch this insane musician vampire movie from 1921. (laughs) Did you come across what instrument Dracula plays? (laughs) I did not because I couldn't confirm it. I did find some really cool archivist photos I'll link to in the show notes of it. And you just see his, uh, he kind of looks a little bit like Gene Wilder. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Okay, this is a dumb question. If you guys had to pick an instrument, what instrument would Dracula play? I would actually go with the violin because I feel like he could also still be very expressive while playing. And I can see that becoming mesmerizing. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like my brain goes right to the only lovers left alive movie. So I'm like, oh, obviously like a sitar, (laughs) but I'm like, I feel like I'm just copying. I'm just (laughs) copying that movie. (laughs) I like the violin. I like the violin. I think that, yeah, I think Dracula has to have like a moody range. So yeah, I could see that. What about you, Ryan? I feel like it would be something weird, like a harpsichord, mm-hmm. because he's been alive for so long. But if you're listening, Dracula, I teach guitar lessons, and I would be happy <laughs> to teach you if Dracula's listening right now. Oh, my God. You're essentially inviting him in. That's what I'm hearing. This is a yeah. bad move, isn't it? This is a horrible <laughs> move. You're like a week away from having a child. Imagine Uh So in part, this, this movie, yes, adapted Dracula, but it was also really inspired by the time period that it came in. So it was following the end of World War I, where a ton of people died, which is an obvious fact, but it's something that as a human being who has not survived a world war, it's still like incomprehensible to me. Like the closest I think we have into our recent memory of that experience of surviving COVID and how after a while, like the numbers ticking up of how many people have been lost to it, it just doesn't make sense because we we can't think yeah. of seeing millions of people, you know? And if that wasn't bad enough, years following World War One, there was a Spanish influenza, which then killed 50 million people. So there were so many, so much, just so much death, death everywhere uh, that people at the time of course, started getting really interested in the occult and mysticism as a way to process and deal with those dark feelings. And so that was in part some of the inspiration for the film to kind of give space for that trend that was developing and also to explore just the the harrowing nature of living through the 1920s and especially in Germany. Some big differences from this compared to Bram Stoker's Dracula. This was made specifically for uh, 1920s German audience. So not for a British Victorian time period audience. It's set in the 17th century in Germany. They nix Van Helsing as a character. And of course, they take some liberties with changing around names. I wanted to ask before we go into a bit more, some people believe that the film is a bit xenophobic and also at times reflecting possibly 
anti-Semitism because the way that the vampire works in the film. And we've talked a little bit about vampire xenophobia and like sexy vampires and funny vampires, like how the vampire sometimes represents the other. And then sometimes the vampire is like point of power and privilege that's taking over people and communities. So in this film, how do you think the vampire is supposed to be seen? Hmm. That's a good question. I guess I didn't catch on that. I I don't know if I get that, but maybe I wasn't thinking into it. That's very fascinating to me. Makes me want to go kind of rewatch and see if I missed some things. But I certainly see from him, well, one, I thought he was hideous. So I don't know how he could mesmerize (laughs) anyone. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and watch and see because I didn't pick up on that. I don't think Orlok is anti-Semitic in his betrayal. I think the head of the realtor firm, Mm. the way he's betrayed with the gigantic nose and the eyebrows like that, Mm. that struck me as anti-Semitic for sure. Mm. Especially Uh, being like the one holding the money, so to speak. Exactly, yes. It was like a very much like a stereotype, uh, a negative stereotype, an anti-Semitic stereotype. But I think the movie, I think Orlok is very much a disease. Mm. Um, and just the way it's portrayed and the way everything advances like this is a movie and I'm glad you point out the Spanish influenza it's about the Spanish influenza and it's taking it back to the, the old vampire folklore how they were visions of disease that came to life as a, a corpse that's how I read the movie um, so I do mm-hmm. see the anti-semitism in, in the that one portrayal but I think more the focus of the film is the disease um, which doesn't excuse the anti-semitism obviously but I don't think that's the the main course yeah, I think I think I see it more in the shopkeeper slash, I guess, big real estate dude, depending, I guess, depending on how you read his role in the film. I think as far as the vampire goes, I can imagine how people could pull that idea out of Count Orlock in the sense that if you're following the idea of like someone who lives in a literal castle, who's like at a time of like plague and death has enough money and resources to buy another home. And that, I guess, that weird mix of like jealousy and fear of that, which is also was a huge thing around definitely pre-World War II, where like people were really skeptical around, like dancing around how to say it, but we're just being very stereotypical about the idea of like Jewish wealth and, and holding mm-hmm. on to money. And I could see, yeah. I could see in certain light people putting that onto Count Arlock. And like, that's, yeah. And, and especially he also kind of has exaggerated features. Like he does very much look like the character looks like a rat for his vamp design, but I can see yeah. someone saying like, also big nose, like, like yeah. character true uh, vibes that are going in there. Okay. So I, I, I could see little bits of it, but that's something that like, like you, I went right to the plague, especially because living in COVID times, like yeah. that's immediately what I, just, I saw, like embodiment of disease and and that's kind of, yeah, where my brain took it. And speaking of the vampire, played by Max Schreck, the vamp star of the film, who starred in over 40 silent films. And to this day, like very little is known about this actor to the extent where at one point someone was trying to write, I mean, many people have tried to write bi- biographies about him and they always get kind of stuck because it, there's not much that have survived that time period. So we don't really know too much about him. Uh, and so a lot of people are obsessed with Max Shrek. There is a movie about that in the shadow of the vampire, I think mm-hmm. from 2000 or 2001. And I think, I believe Willem Dafoe plays Max Shrek, which is yeah. perfect. Yeah, it's it's really fun. A fun fact for this movie, because I love fun facts. There's a point where a hyena 
darts around in the field. That's actually what? supposed to be a werewolf. Yeah. <laughs> it's obviously like it might depend on what cut of the film you're seeing, but that hyena in a scene was just supposed to invite the idea that we live in this like uh, mystical world where anything can happen in this film, uh, which made me laugh. And I also still don't know how they got a hyena on set. <laughs> like, I have no idea how that worked. I honestly thought that was fake. That was a real hyena. <laughs> Wow. Those things are dangerous. I know, yeah. right? Like, how do they herd it into the set? I still, I don't know. <laughs> do you think they kind of just found it outside? Or hyenas even <laughs> native to where this was filmed? I mean, I know it was filmed in, in Germany. They're dangerous. Like, you don't go yeah. near those things. Striped hyenas have oh. been particularly widespread in France and Germany. What? <laughs> I would not have guessed that. <laughs> oh. We're Yikes. learning all kinds of stuff this week, this month. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a big month. So one fun fact slash rumor, uh, because I can't quite vet it, is some people say that Stoker used the word Nosferatu because he thought that was Romanian for vampire. And when you, and other people are like, Nosferatu means nothing in Romanian. <laughs> so it's one thing that's just like... <laughs> I, I like to think that if it was true by now, I think people, I think the Romanians would have reclaimed it and be like, yeah, heck yeah. So I'm pretty sure it's it's false and that he just badly translated a word and got into print, <laughs> which then translated again. Um, so now everyone yeah. thinks of Nosferatu and we're like, oh, okay, cool, vampire. And it just means nothing at all, which I think is hysterical. So since we're talking about brutal vampires, what did you all feel about Max's take on Count Orlock? Was it, do you feel scared by it? Do you find him terrifying? Mm-mm. No, uh-uh. Why not? I, Lean in. <laughs> okay, all right. You know, I'm not used to watching films from that era, and I really need to. And because I had a different thought as I was watching it, and I don't think that's the thought that they wanted to give off. But I found his, I found this to be very camp. Mm. <laughs> and I know back in the back then it, it was not, and so I don't, I didn't find him. I didn't find his take scary. I really enjoyed it. But I think the look, though, that is, I thought that look was hideous. And I could see Mm -hmm. why that, like, really translated very well. But I thought it was a campy performance. (laughs) I agree about the look being very creepy to this day. And I think Mm. that that look is the look for creepy vampires. You know, like, Mm -hmm. if there's, like, a brutal or creepy vampire movie, 30 Days a Night, they basically have that look still. Mm. So I think that look is perfect. I uh, I found his performance more creepy than Yutaka did, but I do agree there's moments where it's just, it's very campy. And it's definitely like he probably came up in the theater and he's playing to the cheap seats of a theater, mm. not to the camera five feet from him. Yeah, I agree with the theatrical take where it feels like he's projecting out for like 500 people, which feels, yeah, definitely a bit camp when it's two feet in front of you. Yeah. I do find him his presence terrifying. And I think that, oh man, I'm going to, I'm going to have to link to it in the show notes, but there's this idea of like, have you ever heard the idea of like monumental scares in horror? No. What's that? So it's basically like, we kind of accidentally stumbled on it when we were doing our jump scare episode. (laughs) Remember when we were talking about how do you define a moment where someone appears in a window and it's terrifying and it makes you jump, but it's doesn't feel like it's technically a jump scare. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to find the article that talks mm. about it, but they call it like monumental scares. And it's it's just that, it's that idea of like 
almost like statuesque and almost the extent where it feels like it's like a freeze frame and someone's head just appears and it gives you the uncanny nature of like this this shouldn't fit here like michael myers mask should not be in my like dining room window (laughs) like nosferatu's face should not be right next to my bedroom window and that's that that, like those ideas are like creeping lingering and it make you like look behind you uh, because you're looking for something that may or may not be there and so i think this is the film that really like made that a thing that every horror movie that has ever come after the silent film copies or in a way intentional or not because it's hard Mm -hmm. not to after that so i liked that and i will say this film also was a obviously as the second vampire film that we know of for sure the first film that showed that vampires could be endangered by sunlight and really started that thing which i thought was really cool so i like it for those aspects and yeah it's still it's still creepy to think of like an a a decaying old man near your window so it still scares me i don't want that yeah i think the scariest shot for me is when he goes upright in the coffin Mm -hmm. because he's laying down he doesn't stand up as much he just kind of like goes like I'm doing a hand motion, but uh, but yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I guess they must have had on wires or something. It just pulled him straight up. You'll notice a couple times in the film where there are things that levitate or move in a way that's just like, <laughs> like it's it looks like mm-hmm. things are moving with invisible hands. Basically, they use stop motion photography for that. So that's how they also did that coming up at the coffin. Oh. So, cause you can That's do it it's very, cool. yeah, it's very easy. Cause all you would have to do is have someone slowly be falling back and then just run it in reverse or like be blind. Oh. Coming up. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's a great scene. I, I just love, I love seeing that in any vampire flick. I feel like it's just now like a staple to yeah. see them kind of just ease up or in a sense levitate almost out of the mm-hmm. coffin. It's one of my favorite things. It just, it gives me chills. Oh, it's like a chef's kiss in a vampire's film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was there anything that he did that you either thought was scary as a vampire or something that you're like, oh, I've seen this in so many other vampire films? The fingernails for sure. Mm. Um, just his fingers are very scary. And I feel like I've seen that a bunch. I, I mean, I can see where in terms of what we see in vampire films, where they take maybe aspects, some of them are, I would say, take like direct, like a direct look from that, because I agree with yeah. Ryan on 30 Days of Night. Mm-hmm. Great film. And I loved the vampire design. But like, I, I think sometimes of, I love this show. I hate Joss Whedon, but Buffy and you see all the different types of vampires and like the way they'll physically change when they're in vampire mode and the claws sometimes. I don't. So I can see it. So my last question before I turn over to Ryan and you, Taka, for any other questions or follow up thoughts on our first breakout film. How well do you think 1922's Nosferatu holds up to this day? So I think I saw it the first time in uh, 2009, maybe. I was a college sophomore. So whenever I was a college sophomore, I had a film class where we watched this. I feel like I didn't relate to it super hard. Mm. But I feel like actually 13 years later, it's holding up better now mm. because like I have a lot of plague feelings now <laughs> where I didn't in 2009. I think, I mean, before 2020, I didn't think there'd ever be like a super plague. Like maybe I like at one point acknowledged like, yes, diseases are possible. But I didn't have any idea what it would feel like, you know? What do you mean like um, plagues that would affect 
America. America, my yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, we've had um, like Ebola, but we were yeah. lucky enough to never have had Ebola near us. Have you ever read The Hot Zone about Ebola? It's this fascinating yeah. book. I'm sorry. This is a total tangent. COVID has made Nosferatu more relatable and, and scarier than it, than it was last time I watched it the, 10 years ago or whatever. Yeah. What do you think, Yutaka? I guess since this was actually the first time I've ever seen it, thinking about all the other vampire films, and I can see how this was kind of the blueprint. I think some of it holds up, but it's not something that still kind of resonates in my mind about Dracula films. So I like it and I agree with the plague aspects, but it's, I don't know, I'm just, I'm mixed on it, but I think I need to see it again. But, and maybe it's because I love, again, it's what mid nineties, but Bram Stoker's Dracula was just so gothic and beautiful and just, ah, so it's, it's hard to, strip that away from my memory and just focus on this but yeah i mean like speaking of like a big stage play version of dracula oh it's so good i had two questions for y'all after watching the movie so there's a plague right and like hundreds thousands of people are dying and the 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 logic of this movie is count or like biting all those people himself that's a good question because i don't think we actually see anything around the transmission you know, like we don't see people being sired and going on. So I don't know. I think we could believe either one. It's really funny to me to imagine that Orlock is just individually. <laughs> just, <laughs> that's like a huge checklist. It's like, all right, got you, got you. Next block. Let's go. Like, that's really funny to me. Bringing it back to Yutapa's last appearance. He is the Santa Claus of sucking blood. <laughs> I just going to all these houses in one night. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's amazing. I, you know, I think there's a lot of ambiguity in, in the film. So I, I mean, that's a good question. I'm going to go with, I think it's really just him because he seems, I, I will give him this, that he seems very selfish and I can't yeah. see him letting others, even if he, you know, Sire than what? No, he wants it all mm. for him. So that means the spread is over now, if that's the reading. But if that's not the reading, all they did was kill Orlock. I don't think the spread stops. Mm. Okay, let me think. Okay, on that. my other question: Did it feel like to y'all like they had like two more hours of movie to go, and someone just said like, no one will ever watch this. Just come up with something, and yeah, if he looks in a virgin's eyes for three hours, they'll blow up. I don't know if I felt that, but I, it needs to be said. I can't stand Hutter. <laughs> <laughs> He's ridiculous. Oh my goodness. I, I just, I, I, that man's a mess. Mm-hmm. And no, I won't. You should have just knocked him out at the bar and be like, just stay here. Stop. <laughs> like maybe Ellen would have been better with Orlock. <laughs> right. I don't know. Maybe she was creepy. I, she was creepy though, and I loved the, her look, but it was very like, oh, okay. Yeah, there's only something unsettling about her look, but I feel this a lot of the time with like silent films of this era. I don't know much about why, but there's something about the way the makeup and hair is done, which to me just seems a little clownish. And I imagine it probably has something to do with like the like quality of cameras that existed back then and having to make everything a bit large, be a bit larger for it to get across, mm-hmm. you know? So it um, reads well. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. But it's still, I feel like that's 
one thing that will take me out of an older film when everyone looks a little bit like a clown and I'm like, oh, I'm not, why am I laughing? <laughs> I think it has uh, probably more to do with the theater because I feel like, do you all see The Lighthouse? Mm-hmm. Not yet, but I know of it, yeah. Um, when you watch The Lighthouse, I think The Lighthouse was shot on the same type of camera. They've tried to shoot it on like film equipment that would have been around in that time period. Mm. And they don't have that weird over up look. But mm. I think that probably to do with the theater again. Um, like you're playing for the cheap seats with the makeup. Yeah, and it can also just have to do, I guess, with like the style of the time period too. Like I'm sure yeah. we do stuff that's weird that we don't realize in, in decades. They'd be like, why was everyone oh, yeah. shaving their heads in all different directions? <laughs> I don't know, but I did it. <laughs> that is absolutely going to happen uh, in 20 years. Uh, okay. Can you imagine, like, at some point, there's going to be, like, a 2020s party where people dress up like how we dress Stop. Now. Stop. I'm still uh, not getting over the 90s nostalgia. Like, it's killing me. Yutaka, you have any questions, thoughts on uh, Nosferatu? No, I, I mean... I will say overall, I still enjoyed what I watched. I would like to watch it again. And I want to see if I can find a different version just for the hell of it. Because that sounds yeah. sounds trippy. You know, I think I, I really still like the quality of what I saw, though. I'll give that. But I'm just I'm such a Bram Stoker boy at heart that this was just like, OK, all right. Like, I get it. But mm-hmm. I forgot to mention during the Nosferatu segment, but Robert Edgars, who directed The Witch in the Lighthouse, and Anya Taylor-Joy, who starred in The Witch, are making a remake of Nosferatu. Apparently, they're going to be filming in Czechoslovakia. It was announced recently. Whoa, okay. I have, I really like Robert Eggers, so I have faith in that being cool. I really hope that Anya Taylor-Joy plays Count Orlok. Oh my god! I think that would be so cool. I think I'm not her. mad at that idea. I love Anya Taylor Joy, so that could be. Ooh, love that. Yeah, I would love that. I loved her in New Mutants, and getting to yeah. see her be kind of a villain, definitely an antihero, was mm-hmm. super super fun. So I would love to see more of that side of her in movies. So let the right one in. I'm going to go through a summary here. Uh, there'll be some spoilers in my summary slash synopsis because this movie plays things very close to the best. Uh, so <laughs> Oscar, played by Kilva Hedebron, is being bullied until he meets his new neighbor, Eli, played by Lena Leanderson. They quickly become friends. In the meantime, her, fr- her familiar, Hakim, played by Per Ragnar, is aging and becoming sloppy with his kills. Spoilers ahead. So Eli seduces Oscar to take his place. It's directed by Thomas Alfredson, who went on to do Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy. And it's adapted from the novel by the same name by John Ajvide Linkist, who also wrote the book that The Border was based on that came out uh, three, four years ago. It was very popular. How'd you like the movie? This is one of my favorite vampire films because I think it really shows how much... <laughs> pun intended again, sucks to be a vampire. It sucks. It's really hard and lonely and still manages to be truly creepy. And there's nothing more terrifying than the idea of a child calling out for help. And you go and decide to like, well, I'll help you little child under this little bridge. And then you get like your neck broken. Like it's terrifying to me. And the first time I saw it, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I really loved this film. The brutality of it. The kills, I mean, they were vicious. I, I loved the aspect though, 
because you really still do sympathize with Eli because as you said, it is so lonely. Mm-hmm. And I, I enjoyed the budding relationship that they added. There was just so many different things that I, I really just, yeah, it's a violent and gory film, but it's kind of sweet and romantic at times. It's very, it's very interesting to me. I was conflicted through feelings, but I loved it. And I thought it was, oh, uh, the pool scene when we talk, I can't wait to talk oh, about that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so bloody fantastic. Oh my it's God. It's amazing. Oh, okay. What about you, Ryan? I'm guessing uh, you love this film. <laughs> yeah. It's one of my favorites. It's either this or Martin is my favorite vampire movie. Mm. So one of my favorite aspects of this film is the subtlety, which leaves a lot of things kind of open. So I just want to talk about like some of those questions that are left open. Like how old is Eli? I mean, we don't know from the film, but just mm. speculating. She, she's not 12. We know she's not 12. because She says that she's been 12 for a very long time. I think I will rewind my brain to think of like the first time I saw the movie. Because I do know the book series facts because I like comparing how they're different. But I think the first time I imagined her to be probably a couple centuries old. I would have to say, yeah, that sounds good to me as well, because it's you never get like a full on fact in terms of you get like hints, but you just don't know. And yeah. Ducasse, you said you read the book? I've read snippets of it because I wanted to see how they were. Yeah, it's a book series, so there's a lot. Yeah. Do they say how old she is in the book series and the parts that you've read? Yeah, she's like between 200 to 400 years old. It's like never quite certain, but yeah, she's definitely, she's an, well, technically they're an old, old person. Okay. Is Hawken her first familiar or part of a line? Is he her familiar even? Uh, I know some people watching reviews by were saying like, he's not even a familiar for sure. I watched a couple of reviews on this because I wasn't sure as well. And it's been interesting because some will say familiar, but then others just say, really, it's, you know, somebody bound her as, well, I guess it's still technically familiar, but basically her te- caretaker that, and once they outlive their usefulness, she's going to look for another caretaker. And it's not really about, well, love. It's been interesting. So mm-hmm. I, yeah. I don't think it's, I don't know about a part of a line. Well, oh, no, I guess it wouldn't be her first familiar. So it'd have to be yeah, I think, well, I do remember the first time I saw this in my headcanon, I imagined that at one point that Hawken was basically an Oscar a very, very long time ago and that yeah. they became close to each other and at least dependent on each other. And then he outlived his usefulness. So that's how I like to read it, which makes it a bit sadder for sure. Yeah. I think if the story's from his point of view, it's a very, I mean, I think one of the great things about the writing in this movie is you could take any of those three characters and put the movie from their point of view and it's just a different movie at that point. Um, yeah. But still a good story. The stories are great. The characters are great. Does Hawken know that Eli's replacing him with Oscar? He asks her not to go see him on the night that he's going out. I don't know if he knows like any specifics, but I, I feel like he suspects for sure, considering that Eli is only really awake at night and is just disappearing during the one time that they're both on the same like awake schedule. He probably suspects that something is changing, changing with uh, with them. I don't know on that because it's very interesting because I think Oscar still wants to, even though, well, I think, I don't know. 
it's it was an interesting take because I saw as maybe Oscar was becoming more sloppy also because he was starting to see that he was outliving his usefulness. Oh, like for attention, like on purpose was kind of, mm-hmm. oh, that's interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I could see that. So when does Eli know that she's going to take Oscar as her next familiar? Like, Did she know that first scene? Does she move in to be near Eli? Or do you think it's happenstance? I think that Eli happens to be moving into this apartment building. In my read on the scene, when we first uh, see them on the jungle gym, I think that they were debating whether or not to feed on Oscar and Oscar just happened to like recognize them. And then it changed. And from that point forward, Oscar was more and more vulnerable. And then I think Eli started to think about how they could have a bond. Yeah. That was take. yeah I, I definitely don't think it was the first time they met. I, I do. I, I, throughout the course of the film, I think Eli was even pushing them away I would think that Eli started to realize that thing, things were happening that, you know, they just couldn't control yeah. and they had to look for, you know, another way. In a sense, I feel like Eli saw what was happening with Hawken. And so Eli then set their sights on Oscar, but also in the process still somewhat formed a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about Oscar for a second. He's collecting articles about murders and massacres. Um, Even before he meets Eli, he's stabbing the air and yelling people to squeal. (laughs) Is he going to become a killer for her sake? Or was he always going to become a killer? I don't know. I think there is, I like that it has this, uh, this is going to come out very interesting out of my mouth. Uh, I like that it's like this. (laughs) It's this wish fulfillment murder plot happening in his head because he's been so bullied for so long that he starts developing this morbid true crime fascination, which everyone finds weird, but it's the outlet that makes him feel strong. If it was set in a different time and place, he probably would have had a true crime podcast, but I think odds are high that he would probably have tried to at least kill one animal first and see how that felt. Yeah, he was, it's interesting. I I definitely think he was, you know, obviously the product of bullying, but I think he was on his way to uh, maybe if he were an adult, he probably would have already started, you know, killing people or he'd do something. I think, I do think he was always going to become a killer, Mm -hmm. but who knows? Maybe he could have become a smart killer. But it was, it, was, it was just interesting watching him go through those. <laughs> I was waiting for him to really just lash out in a sense, like in school mm-hmm. versus, you know, outside hitting him with the, the, the pole or the pipe. Yeah. <laughs> Cass, you keep calling Eli Vey. Uh, yeah. Is that their gender? So I- there's like a read for it in the film and there's a read for yeah. it in the book series. So the read for it in the film based on what we're told and what we can go off of is Eli is assumed by Oscar to be a girl. And throughout the film, Eli tells Oscar, not a girl, dude, not your girlfriend, not a girl. So on that premise, I feel like the film itself was leaning towards ambiguous gender on purpose in the book series, I do know it's it's really fucking dark, actually. <laughs> um, if you can believe it, it's even dark. The, the book series is really dark. But basically, Eli is castrated by a vampire 
nobleman and used to be Eliza's uh, and was born a man, a born boy. And through the vampire castration situation was transformed into a quote unquote girl, like a 12 year old vampire girl, but doesn't have any like AFAB genitalia or anything like that. So a lot of that is very murky. So in the book series, they often, they still say her, but then sometimes people will argue that in Eli's view, it's more or less they, because it's nothing. It's, it's also something that's so many layers there, like, oh, um, because it wasn't a choice. Like we don't know. And I don't know if it's ever quite clear if Eli ever has made that choice for themselves, because some people say like the reading of the film and, and of the book is that they go under the assumption of being a girl for like two reasons. One, because it would make it easier to be attracted to Oscar in that sense and kind of being like skirting around being afraid to be openly gay as a mm-hmm. centuries old vampire. Like that's definitely one reading, which I think is, you know, totally yeah. fair. And then another one is that they don't give a shit about gender and they don't care. And then another one, which will be my final thought on this, <laughs> is that it's a predator tactic to be like assuming this look and gender presentation of a girl to make kills easier for them so that people are more likely to help a like quote unquote scared little girl that is then going to feed on them. Oh, yeah. That's fascinating. I, uh, yeah, it's not wild. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed the line, obviously, where Eli yeah. says, I'm not a girl. And I'd always read it as like, I am a centuries old blood sucking monster. Like, mm. not as in I am not this gender. And I'm wondering how much of that is translated too, because I don't speak the original language, obviously. Yeah, um, we don't speak Swedish here. Sorry. But I don't know if Swedish is like, kind of like in, in English, we have women, a woman and girl, and a woman is an adult and a girl is a child. Yeah. Um, oh, I see where you go with that. Um, that's kind of how I read it. Um, obviously, I mm-hmm. think your reading is better, especially with that, like that very brief shot of Eli's stitched shut genitalia. Yeah. Which I missed it the earlier times I saw it. And this time I saw like they sewed her vagina shut. But obviously that's not, that's a very stupid way to think about it. No, I mean, that could have been, if you don't read the books, that you could have also thought yeah. that and this, the reading would have stayed. And I think when when I first, first saw this film and I was a lot younger, I definitely got a gender ambiguity vibe of how Eli was presented. But I also wondered if maybe it was something like you said of like, oh, maybe like they're just clarifying I'm older than 12, you know, like nudge, yeah. nudge. I'm a 400 year old being hitting on a 12 year old boy. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought to make a joke. It was getting heavy. We talked about castration. The whole movie, I feel they were ambiguous on on Eli's gender. And I even feel like with the look, too, because when you if we talk about the remake, there is really none of that, in my opinion. Whereas this, I, I do feel that because when we get to it, I will, I don't believe that Eli is truly in love or wanting to form that bond. I feel Eli is really manipulating Oscar to be their caretaker. Mm-hmm. But either way, I could un- totally understand why. At first, I, I did assume that Eli was a girl, but then as we're talking about it and thinking about it as the movie pl- progressed, no, I can 
but knowing yeah. that in the books now oh my goodness that's oh yeah, it's dark. Oh. yeah. It's dark. i don't think they could have put that in the film that would have been a bit they almost did they oh i'm glad they didn't but they almost showed it's actually pretty again dark the director wanted to do a close-up shot of the castration in a flashback sequence and basically the special effects people said there's no way that we can shoot up that that close in frame and just use plastic and, and rubber effects you would need to actually use an animal so they got as far along as bringing a pig to the set and the director looked at the pig and was like, I can't do this. I, I take it back. We're not going to show the castration scene. So they got her that pig because I, I think it's more powerful to just like hint and suggest at it yeah. than show it. I think that would be yeah. kind of exploitive. Absolutely. Yeah. Movie's more cool. powerful without it. I know. Yutaka, you said that you mentioned that you've seen Let Me In. I have not seen it. I think Cass said earlier that they had not seen it as well. Mm-hmm. Correct? So yeah. fill us in. How, how is it the same? How is it different? Aside from changing the setting to New Mexico and obviously changing the look of Eli and the names as well, it's just almost like a shot for shot remake. It So I was actually more annoyed, especially when reading about it and just the story behind it and what Matt Reeves thought he accomplished where I'm like, no, you, you, it, it almost felt like plagiarism in a sense. Even some of the kills were almost exactly the same. And they actually ruined, in my opinion, the pool scene. So that was annoying. Uh, Like it, they added, you know, the great thing about let the right one in the pool scene, seeing the head being dropped in from far away, like that, that shot was amazing. Mm -hmm. And this one, instead they focus on when the head's dropped in the water and you see the head and it just looks fake and silly and it's stupid. Mm. It's like, what? No, stop. I just, I don't know. It's a brighter film, which is very interesting because I love the fact that um, Let Me In is very yeah. just dark and hard to see at times, whereas this one's just felt bright and airy. And I'm like, I don't get the same sense. And they just, it didn't feel, I just didn't like it. I'll be honest. Yeah. There were very little changes though, in my opinion. Maybe the script was a little different, but it really did feel like I was watching the same movie, but a terrible version. Ugh. Did they keep the snow? Can't imagine it's very snowy based on where it is. There were some scenes. I mean, it depends. And it depends where in New Mexico. And I'm trying to think. Okay. I, but yeah, because I remember when, oh, well, I forgot what they changed his name. But when they, they tossed him out and then he hit the ground, he was on snow. But why I they I don't even know why they changed the names. That really annoyed me too. So much so that I I remember that they changed Eli to Abby, and I couldn't remember the rest because when I tell you this movie was just movie. Okay, this is terrible. The movie put me to sleep at least three times. Oh no! (laughs) Because I I was so mad because I, I love a good remake because I think that you know there are plenty out there. Mm-hmm. this just wasn't it and I had to force myself that's what I was like why are they making me watch this well <laughs> that's when I didn't realize I had to watch I watched the other one but I was like oh shoot was I supposed to watch the new one and as I'm watching it, I'm like why are they making me watch this this is terrible why aren't we watching the original oh, I'm so sorry <laughs> oh no that's on me I, I should have asked but yes no um let the right one in it is clearly superior but yeah that's just my thought on uh, or I'm sorry let the right one in that's the one to watch no need to watch let me in mm-hmm. I mean if you want to go for it but 
maybe have a, a bottle of wine or something. I really enjoy foreign horror films. Mm. And I really get mad at every American remake. Back to Let the Right One In. Wikipedia calls the movie romantic horror. Mm. Um, I'm just curious how y'all feel about the words romantic and love in relation to this particular movie. Well, I, again, I, I think they're a romantic, to- like it feels like it's got the romantic yeah. vibe, but I truly think honestly that Eli is just manipulating Oscar. So Eli has a new caretaker. I don't know. I, I don't feel like there's that, that feeling of love. I feel yeah. it's a need of necessity. Absolutely. I agree with that. What are you guys? So the first time I saw it, I definitely got more of a companion vibe to it. Like just these two lonely souls in totally different ways, really being all they they had for each other. However, I think it makes way more sense to imagine that Oscar is really just a pawn in this like centuries old vampires plan. You know, it's really hard because then also it gets, it brings up other interesting and, and weird questions like, if it is romantic, how do we feel about a possibly 200 plus monster <laughs> romancing a 12 year old boy? Do it's, we feel that's okay? Very true. <laughs> I know. Ooh. There was a 28 year old guy who dated a freshman at my college who would come to parties sometimes. What? And I'm 31 now, and I think about it sometimes like, what would I talk about if you put me in a college dorm room with like shitty cheap beer playing beer pong with college freshmen? I mean, I wouldn't want to be there. I don't want to be there. I can't imagine having like anything interesting to talk about. I'm sure I could. I wouldn't want to. And then just subtract six more years and then add 170. What is that? What are they going to talk about? Yeah, I mean... Is lo- it's also hugely possible that Eli just pities Oscar and is just like, there's not much going on for you here. I feel yeah. really bad for you. So we'll strike up this like arrangement that is mutually beneficial. But I don't know. I don't know if it's, I would say it's love. I do know one fact about the book series, which Ooh. affected my reading of the film a little bit from like knowing it and then rewatching the film. So after a lot of time, like a lot of time, Eli turns Oscar into a vampire and they're basically together forever. And I feel like if that had happened, I feel like that's more of a, I don't even know if it's romantic. It's here's a big vampire question. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Cause it's, it's equal power, but I guess something that we've talked about a bit through all our vampire episodes, but is siring romantic or is just like a necessity? Like if you sire someone, what is that? I think it would depend on the siring. I think it's a lot like fucking, where like there's making love and there there is fucking. I mean, they're, yeah. they're different things. And I imagine that siring has to have, because I think the, the vampire sucking your blood is very much a sex thing. Mm-hmm. How would we have felt if Eli turned Oscar in this film? Would that have changed the ending for either of you at all? So if that would have happened at that point in time, it would make it very difficult because then again, Eli no longer has somebody to watch out for them during the day. And yeah, Yeah. but knowing that in the book that later down the road, I could totally see that becoming a companionship. I don't know if they're, again, I don't know if love would be a part of it. I think it's just from, you know, so you're not alone, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe a familial love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I just can't imagine a romance between someone with 400 years of experience and someone with, I don't know, who turns them at 18. Yeah. Vampire consent laws are so confusing to think about. (laughs) (laughs) Like how old do you have to be like a hundred to consent? Jeez. Yeah. Octavia Butler's fledgling gets into this in some very cool ways. Octavia Butler's great. Y'all should read that if you can. I had two other questions. One is kind of incidental, but maybe very important. Was the guy in Oscar's dad's house, dad's boyfriend? I already forgot he was in the house. I did too. <laughs> I'm it sorry. wasn't memorable. <laughs> yeah. Because okay. in my head, that makes like a canon where Oscar's getting bullied because his dad left his mom for another man. Uh, oh. Oh. Oh, and I guess but the parents are I, separated in the movie, right? The parents are separated. I could be stretching very far for this. I, I don't fully know. acknowledge that. I might need to rewatch just to see, but I, I mean, it wasn't memorable, so I didn't even pick up on that. The dad's friend is on screen for like two minutes and they immediately get out shot glasses when he walks in. Oh, um, uh, okay. But it's like two minutes. So if you forgot it, it would not reflect poorly on you. <laughs> it's two minutes. <laughs> but if he just walked in, they've got out shot glasses. That just seems like if I went to a friend's house back in the day. Like, yeah, yeah it's been a rough day. Pour out, the, you know. I feel like there's something the way they looked at each other. I, I might be reading too deep. <laughs> Who knows? It's your head cannon. Now it's official. For the ending. Obviously, we all love the pool scene. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think the pool scene, this one and the one that it follows, just like define horror movie pool scenes for me. I think they're the only two, really. They're the two when I think of like swimming pools, like make me kind of actually afraid. Mm-hmm. So that was great. The director, Thomas Alfredson, said the ending with Oscar on the train and Eli is an ambiguous ending. And so I'm curious, did y'all read it as happy or sad or a third emotion? Hmm. Kind of like all the emotions. So much has just happened. I don't, think it's, I don't think it's trying to be any one thing. Yeah. It feels very much like the graduate in the car scene, you know, where like, have you have either of you seen The Graduate? I saw it when I graduated oh, a long high school. time. Oh, okay. Well, it's like the couple. They're like the back I, of the bus, right? They just gave each other a look at just being like, "What's next?" And it's like, I don't fucking know. It like it reminded me of that ending. I guess I thought of the ending. I found it to be honestly, I found it kind of depressing because I think yes, Oscar is was looking for a way out or just looking for a better life but now he's got a new one but it's not necessarily one he chose in a sense yeah i feel like we watched a child get groomed and then kidnapped oh god but Um, you're not wrong exactly like yeah that's kind of where it it felt like yeah i'm with you on that i feel like his home life was bad but, yeah. Oh, well, that too. Yes. I don't know if this life is going to be to be better. He'll be rich because they have that that egg. <laughs> Who knows? Any other thoughts on Let the Right One In? I really enjoyed it. You know, and don't watch the remake. Who are you, Cass? Uh, I feel like every time I mention something with this film, I'm like, hey, let's make it darker. Let's make it more bleak. Uh, one <laughs> thing that is uh, definitely darker and more bleak that was going to be adapted into this film that they took out, which I also think works, is Hawken, Mm -hmm. Eli's familiar human, was supposed to be a pedophile. Oh, Jesus. Which just makes it a lot, yeah, once again, even darker. Here I go. That was a good (laughs) cut. But it was, yeah, because, like, I think, like, the reading that you both had about the the grooming of Oscar being, like, a, a valid take on this film, I think that is enough for us. I don't think we also need to be, like, 
go into the territory of Eli grooming mm-hmm. a pedophile for their needs. Like it's, it's a bit too bleak for me, even for me. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the thing. I'm happy. The director was like, huh, you know what? Don't need it. Yes. Thank you. That was a good cut. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I do have a question. Cause I was looking, how do you guys feel about knowing that Showtime's producing a series? What? I have strong feelings, apparently. <laughs> uh, I was just curious. I, I saw that they picked it up, so nothing on casting or anything. So we'll see if it goes anywhere. But I'll be happy if it's good. I'll be unhappy if it's bad. I am <laughs> going to give them the freedom to make their thing before I, I cast a judgment. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, it's like it, it, it is this property is connected to an entire book series. So I'm sure there's plenty of places it could go with it. I just hope it's not a serialized version of the movie we all just saw because i like yeah. the journey we went on i don't need to add two to four more hours of that like sure maybe it will work but i kind of i like this version a lot so maybe just do something different please well i clearly need to read the books so i would hope maybe it follows yeah. more of that to and expand on the lore because yeah. that it sounds dark but it sounds like a good read i know like vampire nobleman like oh okay let's see mm-hmm. <laughs> That'd be cool. I would I would watch that. Anything else not the right one in? Oh, I think we covered all the dark and bloodiness on my end. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wrapping up our trio of vampire episodes. So first question. I think Let the Right One In is my favorite vampire movie. It's that or Martin, which I think I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. What are your favorite vampire films all time? Name a couple if you need to. I always hate having to pick one favorite of anything. <laughs> okay. One of mine's kind of silly because it's more just like the seminal attachment when I was a kid and used to always watch this. Like I could watch, I still can rewatch this movie and that's um, Monster Squad. Oh yeah. It's just, it, it's not like this like deep thinker or anything. It's just so much fun and I love it. And then I would also, again, I, I said it before, but Bram Stoker's Dracula is just... Oh, it's so it, it that for me. Oh. And if if we could go maybe not movie, I, I got to throw this out there. But Netflix did a really great thing with what they did with Castlevania with that animated series. Oh, yeah, that was, I watched two seasons. And they were very good. So but yeah, that would be mine. I always hate these questions. Even when I know uh, when they're coming. I'm just like, God damn it. <laughs> I think, well, I'll say of the ones we covered for this podcast. I think Vampires versus the Bronx, definitely my favorite out of the one that we went over. I have a soft spot. Speaking of campy and silly and fun movies, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. (laughs) I love it. It's so good. It's so fun. Uh, I love love just the slayness of just being like Buffy's ability to sense vampires coming close are menstrual cramps. Like that's the special tower. And it's just like... So inconvenient, but so funny. And I love that. And I'm a sucker for the entire Blade trilogy. I don't care. I will binge it all the way through, even the Ryan Reynolds ones, because it's delightful. And I love that one. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it gets hate, but whatever. We have like Jessica Beale kicking ass and Ryan Reynolds making a bunch of penis jokes as always. So it's A plus in my book. (laughs) And it's got Parker Posey. So I'm. Yes. The queen. (laughs) Can I mention one thing about the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie that always Mm -hmm. cracks me up? It's during the credits and it's Hilary Swank doing like a fake acceptance speech. (laughs) And I always laugh because then I'm like, she went on to win two Academy Awards. I just it, it just always cracks me up every time I see that. 
I was like, that's, that's if they only knew. Just manifesting, Hillary. Didn't even know it. <laughs> Last question to wrap up our vampire trilogy. We talked about brutal vampires, comedy mm. vampires, and sexy vampires. Mm. Do you have uh, a favorite? I think it's, I'll say this. I think it's really hard to make funny vampire film that still holds up. So I think I'll always look to that first because I think it that's what I have the most respect for because comedy is hard, especially comedy and horror. So that would mm. be my answer. Hmm. It's going to sound maybe just a little too like, well, I love my vampires brutal because that, because I find that sexy. <laughs> Good answer. And on that 30 days of night for you. I'm just saying, yeah. I'm like, okay. <laughs> what about you, Ryan? Putting you in the spot. I like brutal the most too. Maybe not for the same reason. I just. <laughs> Ryan's face. <laughs> I, uh. I feel like whenever I write anything, it ends up coming out funny and I never intended it to be funny. It just happens. <laughs> so true. It's annoying. And I feel like even like my regular life, I'm generally not trying to be funny very often, but frequently people laugh at things I say. And it's always like kind of like a question mark for me. Um, and so I just have very much admiration for people who can actually do things and take them seriously because mm. I cannot. <laughs> Last question. So we have those three categories. If we, if we did it again, what categories did we miss? Like what were like any vampire things that we should have talked more about? It would've been really cool to have done like a queer vampire one. Cause it would've been really great to talk about David Bowie and the hunger. Yeah, I think that's my answer. I don't even know if there are films but I would love to see something about lazy vampires. I'm just trying <laughs> to... But I can't think if that even exists. I, I would love to see that. I think that would fall into the comedy category, but it would yeah. still be funny. That'd be so good. What about you, Ryan? I feel like if I had to add one, I would do either addiction or vampire's metaphor. Oh, addiction um, and that would be really good. Any closing thoughts on vampires? Love them. I want more of them. Never really feel tired of vampires agreed it's actually my favorite monster if you think about monster universes and that's also because i find vampires the sexiest mm-hmm. yes. um, yutaka do you have anything you want to plug oh i should yes as i'm sitting here with my hellbender background but yeah you know i'm part of the horror hour we uh review deep dives reactions to anything all thing horror we certainly disagree on a few things like <laughs> Hellbender. I loved it. My co-host did not. They got called out. It was beautiful. And just <laughs> check out our, you know, check out our YouTube channel. We also do have the podcast, but we, it's at the Horror Hour TV. We really do. We try and drop as much content right now as we can just because we love it. And yeah, we've gotten interviews with Radio Silence coming up. If nice. it, it may have already come out, interviews with the Adams family from Hellbender, and then interview with ooh, the director, BJ McDonald from Studio 666. Which nice. I really nice. Because that movie had no right to be as good as it was. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Itaka, for coming yeah, on our podcast on. again. Oh, no, I loved it. <laughs> Well, thanks for listening all. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you do your podcast thing and follow us on Twitter at Horror Hangover.